Welcome to the Connect the Dots podcast. Jeffrey Klein has conversations with a diverse array of successful people, sharing their stories to educate, inspire, and entertain. Here is your host, Jeffrey. This episode is going to blow you away. I use the pun uh, as I speak with the amazing glass blower, Elliot Walker who you can just tell is an awesome guy. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure you will too. Thanks so much. My guest today is Elliot Walker, a British award-winning sculptor and glassblower. He was the winner on the second season of the Netflix series, Blown Away. Elliot has been working as an artist since 2009 and works mostly with molten glass. He worked for Peter Layton as part of his London glassblowing studio team, for eight years before creating his own space to work in Hertfordshire. Elliot has won the Frederick Stewart Memorial Fund by the Worship, Worshipful Company of Glass Sellers, and his work is part of the Broadfield House Museum collection. He also won the Craft and Design Award at the British Glass Biennale. Elliot graduated from Bang University in Wales with a degree in psychology, and then studied glassmaking in the historic glass quarter in Stourbridge. Welcome, Elliot. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. I like to start always at the beginning. So where were you born and what did your parents do for a living? Well, right at the beginning. So um, I was born in Wolverhampton, which is in the uh, Midlands in the UK, just by Birmingham, which is technically our second city. Um, and my... I, I might have to argue with that. Oh, I'm yeah. Manchester, there. is it? Yeah. <laughs> we'll discuss that. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> well, that's why I said supposedly, you know, it's uh, it's always changing that, but really. Um, but, you know, a big industrial sort of centre, that area, um, very ex-steel, ex-glass, ex-sort of industrial materials. Um, my mother has worked for the NHS, the National Health Service, for, you know, going on 28 years, something like that. And my dad is a cobbler which is a shoe repair person and also has like a hardware store and does engraving and he does all sorts of other things as well like making fishing flies and stuff like that so he's quite a hands-on guy uh and so when you were you were a, a kid you know we talk about oh when i grow up i want to be either a sports star you know maybe you want to be a footballer or an astronaut did you have something that you thought oh when i grow up i want to be this um you know, it's, it sounds sort of likely or unlikely, depending on your perspective, but I always wanted to be an artist. I think if, if someone had asked me what I wanted to do, it would have been that, but I've always been quite like a pragmatic person. <laughs> so uh, I actually didn't try, let's say, I didn't try to be an artist. I sort of fell into it. Um, and I was sort of focused more on the academic side and sciences and stuff when I was in school, because that's sort of what I was good at. But art was always in the background of my life. And if I could have picked something to be, it would have been an artist. So I'm quite pleased at how things turned out, really. And so when you were growing up, was there a role model, other artists? I mean, you said your mother works for the National Health Service, your dad's, you know, tinkering with shoes and, and hardware, yeah. not necessarily artistic. Uh, was there anyone else in, in, you know, whether you knew or, or looked up to? I think it always changed, really, because, I mean, my my girlfriend says that I've sort of lived a couple of different lives in my time. 
Um, so, you know, it's, it's all my, my sort of role models have always changed depending on where I'm sort of focusing at the time. So, I mean, when I was in school, we had like a great teacher in my sort of infant school. Uh, we were in a, um, like a Church of England school. So there were like religious ceremonies and assemblies and stuff like that. And he would like get us out of it every now and again and sit and sort of play his guitar to us and in the, in the fields and stuff. So I quite liked his sort of rebellious attitude towards the establishment quite a lot when I was a kid. Um, and then moving into like when I was studying psychology, um, the uh, psychiatrist R.D. Lang, who was... Um, sort of preeminent in understanding like psychosis and behavioral disorders wrote a couple of really interesting books about like um people with very sort of strange and specific psychosis that you don't really get anymore because everyone's you know you're medicated quite quickly but at this time you weren't medicated so these things would come to the surface and you know he was a big inspiration for me when i was studying psychology and um, one of the reasons i stopped studying that really was because that the time that he was working you know that time had passed and so things were very very different when i was studying so i realized i would never get into the sort of realm that he was working in um and then obviously moving into the the sort of art world after that degree um there's uh, a glass as a sculptor using glass called ivan mez who's a, is a, one of the great sort of czech cast glass artists and i remember reading an article about him um and he met he, he was at the time he was making like one or two pieces a year and like selling these pieces for like 30 grand or something and then spending the rest of the year doing what he wanted and then make another two pieces and i just thought that was an amazing sort of way of living i mean i'm sure it was a lot different for him than it sounds but that was sort of quite a big inspiration for me as well when i started working with glass and following that uh come back to that in one second but i'm you know part of my obsession is about you know, being able to tell amazing stories. So when you were growing up, was there anyone who you thought was, wow, they really are good at telling stories? Was there anyone who fit that mold? Um, well, my my dad and his mom, my, my nan, were, were like brilliant at storytelling. I mean, mostly through song and stuff. It's like my dad's one of these guys where you can't really talk to him without him taking something you've said and making a little song up about it <laughs> and that was something that that my nan did as well and sort of weave you know when you weave this sort of musicality and stuff and like comedy into like a general conversation it can be really annoying obviously you know as you imagine it would be but I think that sort of rubbed off quite a lot on me um, and I tend to do that quite a lot now and remember how annoyed I was about it when I was a kid and enjoying the other side of it, I think. <laughs> well, it reminds me of two things. One, so I have twin daughters who are almost 16 who literally from the moment they wake up to when they go to sleep, they're singing. Yeah. Um, and so uh, music is always going on. They're in school now, so it's a little quieter than usual. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but also the, the show that we I've introduced my kids to, which is Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, which is the improv show and yeah. i watched the first version and, and um so to me that the idea that it, when they have that skill of having to sing a song on a very specific odd topic mm -hmm. in some genre and they do it lightning on their feet i always found that super impressive as a skill to be able to yeah, just yeah. come up with lyrics on the spot and just yeah so i uh, i love that creativity so let's talk about your art and glass blowing so you said you were always interested in art. You weren't glass blowing as as a youth, were you? No, no. Um, you know, my my first sort of introduction to it 
was um, it was in school glass in general. So when I was um, doing my uh, my A levels, I signed up to this evening class for people in the in the the local village who were doing stained glass. So they had a tutor who came into the school. It was like an adult education thing, but I was like mm-hmm. a loose end. So I actually started working with gas, uh, with glass just out of school, really. So in my last sort of year of A-levels before I went to university. And so that was sort of my first introduction to it. Before that, I'd never really seen it. I mean, coming from uh, the Black Country, which is where, you know, Starbridge is in the Black Country, Wordsley, where they were making all the cut crystal. Um, you know, the industry was falling off a cliff even when I was at school, really. The, the factories were closing down. It was sort of moving to you know, production in China and, and Poland and places like that. So I never really saw it. I was never taken anywhere to see it. Um, so my first introduction to glass was in a cold form, you know, and it was just completely by chance that I came across it. You know, I was always like painting and making things mm. with wood and stuff like that. But as far as glass was concerned, it's such a niche thing anyway. Your chances of just coming across it are quite, you know, rare. So I was quite lucky, I think. And prior to that, so what was your first paying job? I always find that an interesting question to hear what people did. Well, I'm quite proud of the fact that I've only ever had one, like, job outside of the arts. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was a kid, I I never really had, like, a paper round or anything like that. I was sort of, you know, studying or whatever. It was never, like, a thing I was sort of made to do, Um, which I think you do have to make kids get a job in a lot of ways, really because um, it's quite counterintuitive I think <laughs> but like when I was at university I was actually um, making money through making this stained glass work so I was doing that for um, the three years I was at uh, university doing like a few commissions and doing craft shows but my only actual job outside the arts was as like a pot washer for a few months at a noodle bar in the local town you know <laughs> so i'm quite pleased at that sort of um you know that that lack of um structured earning really well and i think again you know i i promote all the time that you know you if there's a quote you know if you if you work doing something you love mm. then you never really work yeah you know? yeah that um, used to feel right but the last few months it's changed a bit <laughs> Oh, look at yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sure now that you're more in demand than ever. There's, there's a, so I, you know, glass blowing is not something you know um, that many of us have exposure to, and one of the things that from watching the show is those furnaces, which look like you know a recipe for you know disaster in terms disaster, of you right. know yeah, like you know burning yourself. Uh, do you think that glass blowing at, within the arts is one of the more dangerous? <laughs> you know, fields? I think, I think so. I mean, when you're thinking of, um, materials, you know, you, you have, you know, a lot of very safe material. I mean, everything has its hazards, you know, sculpting wood, sculpting stone, you know, you have the dust and the environment of a sculptor is never the same as it is for someone like painting, say, or illustrating. The environment's always a little bit more sort of edgy. And when it comes to like, the more extreme versions, glass and metal, you know, if you've ever seen inside a bronze foundry, you know, pouring streams of molten metal into pits in the ground, you know, it's, it's all a bit nuts really. And I think, you know, glass is definitely on that spectrum, maybe at the higher end of the spectrum. 
I thought, well, maybe paper mache sculpting is something I could do. That's yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might glue your hands together. But uh, is that part of the appeal? The kind of uh, not risk, but but the kind of edge to it. Uh, I think for a lot of people it is. Um, for me personally, that's the bit I could really do without. Um, you know that the process itself really suits me as a person because um, of its like immediacy and its reliance on um, like your physicality. So I'm, you know, I've always been interested in that, the, the physical side of it, the fact that your body is reacting to the material. I mean, you can, it, it's never resting. If it's resting, it's a puddle. And so you're not moving. As soon as you're moving with it, the whole thing is flowing and it's very sort of um, sympathetic to how, how you are as a person, how you move and interact with the material. So I've always enjoyed that. Um, but the the environment and the heat and the the risk involved in in sort of investment. So when you start a piece, you have to finish it all the way through to the end. And if you make any mistakes during that time, that's a mistake, and you have to either scrap it or deal with it. I don't like that side of it personally. I think right. if there was a nicer way of doing it, then I'd be the not first having a burning furnace there. there that you could possibly you know have some severe you know. Medical yeah, you know, I mean, and, and when you know, when you when you own a furnace, you know. So I'm, I've been running this furnace now for just over a year. Um, it was actually delivered um, a few days after I flew to do the filming, and since then it's not really been off. And so you, you're also committed to this thing. You know, it, it calls me up when it has a problem in the middle of the night, two a.m. in the morning. It'll call me up and say I'm having a problem, and I have to go in there and sort of sort it out and figure out how to do it. So there's. There's a lot of weird things that go along with with um, owning and running a furnace as well, you know, that you don't expect. I, I didn't expect that really. It's like having a marriage with this bit of equipment. Uh, that's reason enough to. I mean, but could you not go to some? So you have your own place. The difference between having your own place versus working out of someone else's. You know, did you want to have your own? You know, was that kind of? It, I think a lot of it's to do with control. So um, the the sort of work that I make and the way that I make. Um, I need a lot of control over the equipment. I need to be able to change things as and when I see fit. You know, I need temperatures to change. I need consistency mm -hmm. of glass to change. Um, the only way of having that really strict control, which I need, is by having my own place. I mean, I spent I spent like quite a few years hiring to make work. And there's only really like one place in the country in, in the UK that you can go and have that control. And the downside of that is you pay for it like massively. So you're looking at like 700 to a thousand pounds per day to hire with the sort of level of control that you really need. So it quickly becomes, you know, untenable. Um, but you know, there are a lot of downsides to having your own place, but I've, I've loved it really, because mm. you can, you can do what you like when you like, and you can sort of sort everything out exactly how you need it. So. Well, and as someone who's never had a proper job, not to discourage, you know, yeah. to discourage <laughs> that, yeah. I'm an entrepreneur. And so one of the, I think the uh, draws to that kind of lifestyle is that you call it control. I, yeah, I would say another word for that is freedom that, you know, you, you have the freedom to decide, you know, you talked about one of your inspirations, he did two pieces a year and then he had the rest of the year to, you know, kind of craft the life. Um, I want to talk about the show for just a second. I'm sure you've talked, you know, ad nauseum once it came out. Um, but I'm kind of fascinated by, you know, I worked in the film industry and my children really like reality shows. And I try and explain to them it's not 
real. Right. So, <laughs> it's not real. Uh, yeah. So I guess my, my question is how realistic do you think Blown Away was in terms of the things that happened and, and the way it was produced? Um, well, this is where, you know, I sort of can give massive kudos to the people who put it together, the production company, because um, as far as the actual uh, process part, you know, the making part of the show, it's 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 all there in front of you, really. I mean, my, my one sort of, uh, con not concerned about it, but the strange thing was for me was to see a six-hour making session, which was start to finish six hours, no exceptions, um, reduced to this tiny little <laughs> flicker on the screen. You know, that was really odd for me. Um, but, you know, it was all filmed as we were doing it. You know, they like to, they like the bits where things break and where there's like the drama in there. But because of the nature of the process, things did break and there was drama. You know, normally, you know, it's never a calm process, but in that environment, when you have this mm. sudden time pressure and you're doing things that you've never done before a lot of the time, you know, the drama's real and the, the, the strain and the stress is real. So I'd say as far as that goes, it's pretty, pretty good. Yeah, pretty accurate. And in terms of it being a competition, because that's the other thing is that artists generally are not in that kind of environment where you're actually competing against someone else who's doing the same, you know, realm of work that you're doing did that how did that feel did you feel that um hampered your creativity or enhanced your creativity well to be honest like at the, the competition um it relies on the other people to have that in their head as well you know it relies on everyone to have a certain competitive mindset and as far as like the other contestants on the show we all got on so well and we we're all so supportive of each other that the competitive element was there, but you were mostly, you know, you were still rooting for the other person. I mean, right. something which, like, I was, I was recalled when, when I actually watched the show was, you know, Cat especially, Cat Burns walking around like asking someone how they are, like, oh, how are you getting on? Oh, how are you getting on? Oh, that looks good, you know. And she was like that, and everyone was sort of, you know, um, supporting each other and making the whole process like quite pleasant, really. Although, I, I did, one thing I do recall from the show as well is there are times where there's certain tools that didn't yeah. seem to be um, <laughs> available. To, uh, you know, I was like, I, I was like, don't they have that for everybody? And they're like, no, no, they had to share. Yeah, and I think that adds sharing, some tension. That, that was horrible. That, yeah, I mean, that was the thing. We all knew that that would be a part of it from the start. You know, while there were so many people, you, you, you know, you couldn't get hold of certain things. Right. You're always having to weave in and out of other makers but i i think um there was nothing like you know no one was blamed for that if anyone was blamed we were blaming the production company for not yeah. getting enough equipment for us but well, again, i'm wondering that if that was that was a tool that was, a... that was a tool of theirs to sort of add to the tension yeah that was right quite, that was i quite think quite it was intentional to yeah, not yeah. have enough tools so that they would create some drama that might not have existed yeah they want to they want to create difficulty for us and make us sort of work at that higher level but you know that was that was part of the challenge of the whole thing part of the enjoyment as well you know when you're limited in certain ways you have to think of different avenues and different ways around the limitations you know well it reminds me of a distinction that um a upm from the film industry shared with me he was giving when i was kind of first starting out and he was talking to a group of us and he said the distinction between an artist and a craftsman he said an artist just does whatever they want 
without any limitations, no constrictions. He said, but a craftsman is someone who has parameters in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so he uses the example of Michelangelo in terms of the Sistine Chapel. Well, he only had so much space that he could work with and he, someone was paying him. So I like the idea that when you're creating something with some and, and all of these, you know, reality shows, I think, put on these, you know, whether it's MasterChef or, you know, they're putting time, which is always the one like, yeah, I can yeah. create this beautiful thing, but you're telling me to do this in six hours, a process that might take me three days. And so yeah, there's that yeah. intention. But but I like the idea that, you know, art is is crafted because, you know, you're, you're, you're and I think it forces you in a good way sometimes to create something that, that that you know by that challenge yeah i mean that's the strange thing about glass as a material i mean there are a lot of people working with it as purely as craftspeople. you know people who are interested in the process who are interested in you know the the function or the design of the work that they're making but there are a lot of people now coming through who are working with the material in a completely different way you mm -hmm. know and the thing about glass itself is it's so um process reliant you know it's like you can't really do anything with it unless you understand the technicalities of the craft itself so it's it's very much on that line between you know the two things and you i don't think you can really have one without the other you know you can't have the the art in a work mm. of, of glass particularly without having some element of the craft in there and how it's actually manipulated because it is so um process driven uh, so I've been to Venice a couple times, and I'm a big fan of the, you know, and and I've been to Murano in particular, where I guess it's the glass, you know, at least from an outsider, the glass blowing kind of you know mecca of of the world. Yeah. Um, I guess part of my is curious about whether you think it's justified in being you know Venetian art being what it is. Uh, why why is it that way, and is there opportunity, um, you know, for Hertfordshire to become the next uh, <laughs> Venice, Venice of, of, of England, uh, or, you know. Um, I think, I think the the sort of not the obsession with Venetian glass, but the the focus on it, you know, it, it's still it's still very much there for a lot of the artists who are working with material now. I mean, everyone references Venetian technique you can't help but reference it in your work. And some people do it deliberately. Some people do it by association, but you can't really get away from it. And I think the reason for a lot of this um, reference of Venetian technique, especially in, in the artwork that's been produced now is because um, there's like a renaissance going on, not against it, but to try and, under to try and understand the materials place in the wider scheme of things and to understand the contemporary practice in relation to the history of the material, you know, mm. um, I think a lot of, I mean, I haven't been to be honest, but I can see it being like the ultimate glass sort of tourist trap in a way. It's like, this is glass. This is how it's made. This is what we make with it. You know what I mean? And I'm sure it's sort of laid out like that, but because it's been like, you know, it was such a huge, um, uh, commercial enterprise for mm. the Italians for so long, you know, they, they owned it, they owned it worldwide, global exports. And so it's very protected there. Um, and because of that, and because of the sort of commerce involved in it, it becomes very commercialized. And so a lot of the mm. people who are making in Italy might think they're making this, you know, this historic work, but in a lot of ways, they're just sort of, um, following the vein that's been commercially successful for, 
you know, hundreds, if not like thousands of years, like thinking back, you know, to the work that was being made um, for, you know, the aristocracy in, in Europe mm-hmm. and that work still being made and still being sort of uh, touted as this like amazing sort of contemporary stuff because it doesn't really lose that edge, I think, in a lot of ways. But I'm not sure. I'm sure it's deserved and I know it's deserved and we're going to keep referencing it. But I think there's a change mm-hmm. in attitude and, you know, the new... Um, Venetian style has actually been developed in the States, really, you know, in mm. places like Seattle and Corning, you know, they've taken the the bones of, of Venetian aesthetic and sort of turned it into this completely new thing, really. Well, for me, you know, I went, as I said, I was there twice. And the first time you get off the boat and they shuffle you into some, what I call touristy trap, where mm. they have a demonstration and, and all that. The second time I went, uh, we had family friends who actually have a, an elect, a glass, a um, electrical shop where they get some of their fittings from a glass blower in Venice. And so we had kind of an insight. We went to his shop, which was further in the island, and we went right when it was closing time. Nobody was there. And we got right. like a hands-on, you know, not, not a masterclass because he wasn't teaching, but he... Yeah. You know, we got firsthand, he's like, let me make you something. And then what yeah. my kids were there, what do you want? And so we had these, it was a different experience, I think, that we had than the average. And um, yeah, and I've heard of, I've heard of these, um, you know, the studios have their the frontage. Yeah. And then I've heard quite a bit about these like back rooms where like only the collectors can go. And then if they know you're anything to do with glass, if they know you make glass or you're, you, you understand, they, you any, they won't let you in, you know, it's yeah. like you're either buying or you're not looking, you know. And it was interesting because the, 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 the glass blower was also a little sensitive to us seeing what he was doing. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, it's tech. so competitive. Though, um, you know, like, and yeah. he, I mean, he, he designed stuff incredibly uh so it, it but i i for me uh, as a traveler to have yeah. that kind of experience was was phenomenal and yeah. you just to see you know a round piece of black you know cylinder that's transformed into this beautiful horse is what he ended up making us yeah uh, in front of my eyes was pretty pretty phenomenal mm. uh so here's a here's an interesting one do you think that art imitates life or life imitates art um well i think i can only really answer one way because of my like my current focus on still life it's got to be art imitating life really i mean that's the thing that i spend most of my time doing and the artwork that i'm looking at at the minute is all sort of representational um i I can't see how it works the other way unless it's like in music (laughs) or like theater or something really well, I think it's the, the way I think that you might make the argument is in the uh, derivatives of art. Mm. So that if there, you know you take something that's already that is art and then you then transform it to something new in life. Yeah, I mean that's sort of what I was thinking with music. You know, you you make a piece of music that influences a culture. I guess it's always give and take, really. But like, I just think of the punk scene <laughs> and how like how that changed the whole of the UK. You know. Uh, and then it just made me think of the idea of um, something being artistic and something being good. Um, and, you know, the old expression, you know, art is not in the eye of the beholder. Do you think that there is uh, any kind of objectivity in 
what makes good glass blowing? Um, at the minute, I would say not really because um, because of the, the 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 line that it's walking between you know you know there's, there's people working with glass who are making like conceptual art mm-hmm. and just using the material or the properties or the concept behind the material to feed into something bigger. Um, it if you're looking at it solely from is that a good piece of glass point of view? I don't even think that glass has the, um, the, the structure around it, say that ceramics does. So if you're, if you're, you know, you, you, you look at, I mean, I collect ceramics and I've been to a lot of shows where people are buying ceramics. They always flip it over and they feel the bottom and they want the thickness of the piece to be all the same. And it's like glass doesn't have that sort of restriction on it. You know, you can have a massively solid, thick bit of glass with a tiny bubbling which is a accomplished piece or something which is so wafer thin you can bend it which is also mm. an accomplished piece so I, I quite like that about glass that it doesn't have it doesn't have a lot of restrictions to it even from a purely craft based uh, perspective you know the most the most um uh like sincere piece of glass which has been blown by a beginner can be like a beautiful object and an accomplished piece of work. You know, they might not be able to replicate it, but does that even matter? Well, it reminds me of there's a famous uh, art by someone named Klein, my name, Klein Blue, and it's Ooh. a giant canvas of, of blue. And a lot of people go, what? How is right, that? yeah. And I, and I think it was, well, he was the first guy who did that. <laughs> you know, I couldn't do that now. <laughs> to just, hey, here's a piece of red, Klein Red. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> what's the biggest challenge with working with glass? Um, the biggest challenge, uh, is the, um, it's, I, I always think of it as like the resting state of the material. So aside from having to, you know, make work and be successful as a, as an artist, like the, the material itself has, you know, the, the first thing about it is it doesn't have uh, a conducive resting state. So if I hand you like a piece of clay or a piece of thin metal and I say, make a dog or make a face, you can sit there with it, you can squeeze it, you can squash it, you know, you can make something out of it. If I give you a a mass of molten glass and say, make something with this, it just doesn't work, you know? So the biggest challenge is actually understanding um, how to even get the material into the space that you can actually start manipulating it. And without that, you, you have nothing really with it. Uh, now you have become a very well-known glass maker very quickly because of the Netflix show. Um, and so therefore, you know, and success is something that lots of people define. How, how do you define success? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, I've, like I said before, you know, I've always been quite pragmatic about this whole shift in career and I knew how long it would take to even make anything of it at all so before the show I was I had my like 10-year plan relying on the fact that I would keep working and moving forward slowly step by step by step and it was all going fine you know I like had my plan together I just opened the studio um the, the only thing that wasn't really planned was doing the show. So <laughs> I'm sort of, my whole perception of it has now shifted and my idea of success has changed like massively because of that sudden, you know, this, this sudden change in the way I work and the way I'm perceived um, 
globally. I think because the UK is such a small scene, um, mm. I was sort of making my way into it in quite a sort of focused, positive way. And now suddenly I have like a global audience that I need to sort of deal with and satisfy. <laughs> so I don't really know what happens next. Isn't bad. Yeah, I don't know what happens next. I don't know how... Um, I think it'll just have to happen naturally, you know, and deal with it as it comes along. But I mean, the success for an artist, I think, in the end, in the most basic level, really, if you want to pursue it properly, you have to be able to make a living doing it, you know, and you don't need to be like selling work for millions of pounds or Damien Hurst or whatever, or Jeff Kuz. You don't need to do that. You can, you know, so many, the idea of a struggling artist is sort of true, there are so many people who are making like a good living and contributing to society being artists anyway. So I think that's success enough for anyone really. Um, you're, you remind me in terms of uh, the difference when you, when you have a plan and then, and there, there's two things I've been referencing a lot recently. One is Mike Tyson famously said, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And maybe a more, you know, uh, artful way of saying it is, you know, John Lennon in a song that I love said, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and so you had your plan and then, you know, Got something unexpected in happened. <laughs> in a good way. It's all, in it's, a good way. Yeah, in a good way. <laughs> well, I think, again, it's, you know, we look at this last year of craziness with the pandemic. It's exactly you know, life is going to throw stuff at you and it's about how you respond and react to it that yeah. make make the difference and i think that has changed my whole experience of it as well i mean when we were in when we were filming it was just before everything happened you know it was it was when you know i heard a little bit on the news but we were so sort of um contained where we were we we're all in the same hotel we were going from hotel to studio studio to hotel you know there wasn't really much else going on and then i come back to the uk through an empty airport and then two days later Canada closes their border and I try and go shopping here and there's nothing in the supermarkets and I just didn't know what had happened and then right. since then it's been the pandemic so I've been working through that um, just waiting for the show to come out and then it has right mm. in the middle of the whole affair so it's been we quite strange. We needed to watch good shows so yeah uh, yeah i think it came out just when everyone was starting to express how sick of netflix they were as well so well, <laughs> i was a bit like oh, God. <laughs> well we we loved the show it was just you know and again it was it, something i you know we happen to like you know glass art and we have you know a bunch that we've had over the years and it's it's just I think there is something about that material, mm. its fluidity, um, and the fact that it's not kind of, you know, concrete. That that and just the idea that it's it changes form and then it's like almost like frozen in time when it's you know cools. Yeah, um, well, it, yeah. I mean, it's very um, filmable as well. Very filmable. What inspires you? So you're an artist. So what what inspires you to create a particular you know piece? Um. I think um, in a lot of ways, because I didn't have any like formal training, I've said, I've, I'm sort of realizing this as I'm sort of talking to more people. It's like, I'm sort of exploring uh, art history while I'm making. So, you know, I started off, um, you know, like five or six years ago making um, 
anatomical, classical sculpturing in the material. Um, and then I've moved from that into the still life genre. So I'm sort of working not through history, but I'm working through different um, genres of art and seeing how I can bring something new to it or relate it to the practice that I'm running, really. So I, I don't know, you know, a lot of things inspire me and it changes all of the time. I don't have a particular, you know, idea or or thing that I'm looking at all the time and focusing on like research or anything like that. You know, I do research in all sorts of different areas and everything's developing all the time. So yeah, it's quite an interesting process really. Uh, if you could go back to when you were 21 and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Ah, uh, I have no idea. I can't even remember what I was doing then. <laughs> I think I probably would, would have just been starting my psychology degree. Well, if you went and back I, now, would you, would you do the degree again? Oh yeah, without a doubt. That's the thing. It's like, I wouldn't change, I, you know, I wouldn't change anything that I've done. I think without doing that degree, you know, I learned a lot on it as well. It was like, it's a fascinating subject. It just didn't fulfill everything that I wanted it to fulfill. Mm -hmm. And without having that sort of disappointment, in my life, I wouldn't have made this drastic shift, you know, and I decided I was going to shift in the second year after we had this lecture from a professor who'd spent uh, 10 years videoing rats reaching for food and then burning bits of their brain to see how their fingers change. And I just like remember listening to this guy and thinking, no, I can't be involved in any of this stuff. So <laughs> I think without that, I wouldn't have made the shift really. So I wouldn't, I, do, I wouldn't change anything that I've done really. My wife um, is British and went to, you know, she has a psychology degree from Leeds. Right. So, and, and she hasn't, her, she worked in the film industry and she's worked in, in parent education. She actually worked for the NHS. And yeah, I think, again, it's not a matter of, because uh, if you look at, you know, your life and you take any one element, you know, piece away, it, it'll have that ripple effect and could have affected, you know, so people ask me, oh, you know, which I went to law school and never, I've never been a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's hard to pinpoint, well, you know, partly being in law school that I recognize I don't want to be in this career. And Exactly. And, and you need that. I think people have to make that choice way too early. <laughs> really, you know. Yeah, I keep telling, you know, one of the things I like about uh, England and Europe is the gap year uh, that a lot of people do before they go to university. And I'm trying to encourage my my kids to do that, but they're like, "Oh, and I'll be behind." I'm like, "You won't be behind. You actually be ahead." But yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, yeah. I'm sure. So one of the things that I find interesting is that you know, so glass blowing has been around a very long time, and you know, you talk about different techniques that you learn. Um, what do you think is the next trend, though, in in the glass blowing world? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sort of relatively new to it. I think. Really, you know, I've been I've been working professionally for about nine years um, and I've come into it from, you know, a perspective of everything's in decline, especially in the UK. It's like the the industry uh, has has sort of finished up the, the the industry that that was, you know, that was so uh, prevalent in, in my area as well in the, in the Midlands. That sort of finished, so that was in decline. Then the training and all the funding for the training that came along with that is now 
pretty much gone and studios are closing all over the place educational facilities are closing and shutting up there's only about five places in the uk you can go and learn it now so i don't know it's i've always got like a sort of semi-pessimistic view of it because of that but on the flip side the people who are actually working and making beautiful work making artistic work there's a demand there for the for what we're making you know and in even in the sort of semi-industrial sort of like lighting and mm -hmm. design work and stuff like that, that it's all sort of coming up. So I don't know, it's quite weird for me to see, you know, industry declining, artistic sort of practice declining, but everything still seeming quite vibrant. So <laughs> I don't know, it's a little bit difficult. I think I'll get a better perspective of it when I go, when I go to the States and see the museum there and sort mm -hmm. of talk to the people who are involved in it in the states because that's really where the the future of the material is and there's so much training going on and there's so many institutions that support the material and people who work in it so i'll get a better idea over there I think. do you know when that will be or it's all uh, it's, well yeah we've just sort of decided this year's a bit of a write-off so we're going to do it next next spring um which i'm really excited about because because i never did the gap year um, I went from education to education to education and then into work and then into having a studio. So I never got to do the whole, I mean, you can travel miles with glass. You can travel all over the world with glass because it's such like a tight scene and you can call people up and go and work for them and stay with them or whatever. Um, so I missed all of that. So I'm looking forward to sort of expanding that horizon a little bit. Um, um that was kind of my, my, my next question was, you know, right. For you, what's next in terms of your glass blowing um, journey? I mean, my focus has always been on, you know, I'm, I think I'm quite self-serving as, as an artist. You know, I came into it wanting to make uh, work that fulfills me. And it's always a journey towards the ideal series or the ideal set of sculptures that I want to make. And I'm, you know, it's a continuing thing and it, it's always changing. So I'm chasing something all the time and, um, you know, having my own place and working with um, Bethany and expanding into like the gallery scene a little bit, you know, that's all going to be part of the journey. And hopefully I'll get more freedom to focus on what I want to make and, you know, develop into different materials and work with other people, uh, collaborating with different materials and stuff. So, yeah, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I always like doing a show as well. It's like, that's my mm -hmm. favorite thing. If I've got like a year to work towards a show, then I'm on it, you know. I'll have to find a way to have a show in Philadelphia. That, that'll be something. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're, I'm trying to sort of plan something when I, when I come to calling to do my residency, I want to have a show in New York at the same time. So I'm working with a gallery in the UK that I just did a solo show with. And they've got a space in New York that they can work with. So I'm hoping to sort of build it into that and really have like a good showcase when I come over. Well, I look forward to hopefully being able to go. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be awesome. Hopefully by uh, next right. year it'll all free up a bit, you know. Um, we're now what I call my rapid fire questions. And, and these are meant to be kind of just off the cuff. Uh, doesn't always go that way, but let's, let's see how we go. So if they made a movie about your life, who would you want to play you? Uh, uh, Elijah Wood, I think, because I like his eyes. He looks really sad. And I think that would work well for me. <laughs> Should stories always have happy endings? 
No, they should have sad endings or no ending at all. I think that's my favourite ending where nothing is concluded. And there's kind no sequel either. I don't like a sequel. Kind of the Waiting for Godot. I don't know if you're familiar yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I love the stage direction. You know, they said, should we go? Yeah, let's go. They don't move, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have a favourite emoji? Uh, at the minute, it's the squirting aubergine because I'm making a piece based on that. <laughs> uh, is there a glass blowing emoji that I'm, that, that exists? Uh, I don't think so, but I saw a few gifts the other day, which are quite good. Like sort of blowtorch or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, name one of your favorite songs. Um, favorite songs are, uh, I like Song 2 by Blur because it's quite concise. Yeah. Very Britpop. Yeah. Nothing wrong with Britpop. Um, what is your favorite social media platform? Uh, the only one I use, Instagram. And can you name a book that left a lasting impression on you? Uh, it would probably be uh, Lewis Carroll through the Looking Glass, the Alice ones. I've got I've got really into the illustrations and loads of different artists have done illustrations for that book. And I've got about maybe 17 copies and I've been trying to sort of collect all the different illustrations. There's a there's a um, piece that was done through the New York Public Library where they had Instagram stories that combined the literature and uh, Alice in Wonderland is one of them. It's, uh, it's really interesting how they've done it where you're reading the story and then things are coming to life and uh, yeah yeah i mean that was one of the first books that i read you know and the illustration is so like iconic and there, there's an exhibition on at the minute i think i think it's yeah oh it starts later this month at the british library of all the different sort of illustrators and graphic designers that have done stuff based on that story so yeah it's, it's very rich and there's a lot going on there uh what's one thing you can't live without um, good food, I think. <laughs> and I've been doing a lot more cooking over lockdown. It's been good fun. A lot of aubergine at the moment? Yeah, uh, fair bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I should let people know, you know, this is, I lived in England, but an aubergine is an eggplant for us yeah. stateside people. That's the um, one, yeah. <laughs> if you could be credited for inventing something, what would it be and why? Uh, so it, it hasn't been invented yet, but I... You know, I'm quite a keen forager, and I think if I could invent a way of like propagating some of these more um, wild varieties of mushroom, you'd be onto a winner there, like the seps and stuff like that, or the chicken of the woods. You know, people can't really propagate it, and I'd love to sort of figure out a way of doing that, so you could like get them sort of in the shops commercially, like properly some of the weirder varieties. You know. Uh so you've been very kind with the time and I really appreciate it, Elliot. Is there anything at the moment that you're promoting or you want people to direct them that's uh, top of mind? Well, I think something quite fun at the minute is we're um, Blowfish Glass UK. So that's the online gallery that my partner and sidekick and girlfriend has set up, Bethany. Um, she's doing a competition at the minute for kids. And we've had a lot of emails recently about like, people wanting to know about work and very serious stuff. And since we've launched this competition, there've been like emails of like kids drawings and stuff, which we're really enjoying. So she's doing um, a design your own Mr. Noteworthy character, which was the cartoon character I made on the show. Yep. 
And so, yeah, we're trying to get a load of different designs from kids and we're going to make a few of them. And whoever wins like certain categories of the design competition, they get a free one as well. So that's always good fun. Something a little less serious, a bit more lighthearted. <laughs> I like that. And I'm assuming the easiest way for people to connect with you and look at your work is Instagram. And then what is it? Do you have a website that where you have your stuff? Yeah, my website's under construction at the minute. But yeah, Instagram, eWalker Glass Art and then Blowfish uh, Glass UK. That's the gallery that I'm selling from. There's there's a load of other galleries that I'm working with. Messons Gallery in London, London Glass Blowing and uh, Vessel Gallery, which is also in London. Very London centric at the minute. Um, but yeah, you can find my stuff all over the place. Well, this has been a super treat for me. Um, I, you know, we were big fans of you on the show and of your work. And, and as I'm scrolling through your Instagram, I'm, I was about to say blown away. Yeah, blown away, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Netflix had that, you know, that, that little pun that just that works. Yeah, they did um, with that one, yeah. Uh, but I, I really appreciate your time and coming with us and helping us. Really, thank you for helping us connect the dots. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>